You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, we have a lot of uh, heavy things to get through today. Obviously, there's a coronavirus spike going on in Florida, including around Orlando, where the NBA is still planning to have uh, its return to play at Disney World here in a couple weeks. Um, but before we get to that, I thought we should uh, maybe take a walk on the lighter side because um, you know players are reporting to their home teams and their home markets this week. There's going to be a little bit, I think, of a, you know a headcount aspect to this. Who's going to show up? Who's not going to show up? What does everybody's roster look like? I think it's going to be a major talking point. Um, we're seeing reports already over the last uh, 24 hours that Davis Bertans for the Wizards will not be participating. There goes Washington's hope at a miracle run to the title. Um, also, <laughs> other reports out there, Michael, that uh, you know perhaps Anthony Tolliver is going to get picked up. Um, so I thought what we should do is do an open floor version of who he play for. And I'm going to give you a time machine, Michael. We're going to travel back to February and March of this year, which honestly, uh, I think after we do this exercise, you will agree with me, feels like going back in time about 25 years minimum. And I'm going to just, you know, read off uh, maybe some names of players and, and what happened to them, where they landed in February and March. And you give me your honest reaction. Uh, and we talk through maybe do those moves matter uh, for this resumed season, uh, you know, in uh, in July? Because a lot of times in, you know, the, the trade deadline season or the buyout season, some of those moves kind of get swept under the rug. They're not as big of a deal. But I'm now wondering with some of this possible attrition, whether they're going to get a, a little bit more attention. How's that sound? That sounds great. I mean, when you sent over some of these names, I completely forgot that they were on the teams that they're on. So this should be good for, for everybody. I want to start with the Lakers just because, well, they're the Lakers and everybody always starts with the Lakers. But also uh, because Avery Bradley and Dwight Howard have both kind of made some noise here over the last week about potentially not playing. Do you remember, Michael... The Lakers waved to Marcus Cousins and signed Markeith Morris. Do you remember that happening? And do you have any favorite memories of Markeith Morris era um, in Los Angeles? I, I believe uh, there was a Lakers blogger who tweeted out over the weekend that people forget Lakers Markeith Morris was a bucket, maybe like three or four buckets uh, during his time there in L.A. But uh, do you have a favorite standout moment? Yeah, he's a bucket about 25% of the time that the ball leaves his fingertips, mm. which is what he shot in a Laker uniform. Um, I do remember Markeith Morris getting signed. I actually, I'm going to be honest, I did not remember that DeMarcus Cousins was no longer on the team and that they had to waive him to sign Markeith Morris. So that's just a reflection of how much time has passed and everything that's gone on. And in doing a little bit of research for this, like... I just think it's wild that DeMarcus Cousins is still 29 years old and that he was the best center in the NBA, like, what, four years ago, maybe three years ago. And he's just been a total afterthought for the past calendar year. And I know that injuries are a big part of that, but it is still really 
hard to reconcile with that fact just how far this guy has fallen. No, and how many millions that injury cost him. I mean, hundreds mm-hmm. of millions probably over the course of what the next five, six, seven, eight years as his career developed. It's uh, pretty insane to think about. The Cousins one stands out to me because of the Dwight factor. You'll remember if we go all the way back to last summer, the Lakers were working out uh, Dwight Howard and Joakim Noah, and they picked Howard, right? Um, Noah winds up signing with the Clippers. Do you remember that uh, in March on a 10-day contract? Um, <laughs> it sounds like they're going to keep Noah. Did the Lakers potentially get themselves boxed out here? If you know, depending on what Dwight decides to do, you know, not really having Cousins because of the injury, not having Noah because he's on the Clippers. Does that wind up being a factor here that we should look at in terms of that head-to-head matchup between probably the the West top two teams? No, I mean, signing Joakim Noah was a humongous addition for, it sounds really weird to say this, but it was a humongous addition for the Clippers just because they needed size. I don't know what exactly he'll be able to give them. but That was hilarious. You got halfway through your answer and you started having flashbacks (laughs) to to Nick's Joakim Noah, didn't you? You started having some Madison Square Garden flashbacks and you couldn't stop yourself. I saw him dunk, I remember, in a Memphis Grizzlies uniform. I don't even know what year that was, but it feels like 2019, maybe. And he looked okay. He looked like uh, he was in shape and he could get off the ground. So shout out to Noah. Um, I think the Lakers can technically, even if Dwight if Dwight chooses not to play, I think they can re-sign DeMarcus Cousins if those two parties were interested in uh, reuniting. I'm not 100% on that, but I mean, it's like going back, like this was something that I'm sure that they regret. I mean, DeMarcus Cousins, 100% healthy. He's now about a year removed from that torn ACL, about 11 months. So you would think he'd be able to potentially get into game shape at some point, hopefully before July. Uh, 30th. Um, and then more importantly, when, uh, you know, the games actually start to matter uh, in, in August uh, and going on from there. But yeah, if Dwight doesn't come to play and you have Markeith Morris, who, you know, he's not a five. He's not, he, he's just, I don't really even think he's a, a, a positive impact player in any context, let alone on a championship contender. They're going to miss someone like DeMarcus Cousins and that type of talent. And obviously, yeah, there is a huge caveat with his physical condition. But I think DeMarcus Cousins on the open market now is still pretty intriguing, if not attractive. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious. If you were DeMarcus Cousins' agent, what would your advice be? Like, go down and play in Florida or just chill and use the extra months for re- uh, rest and recovery? Because for somebody like... Kevin Durant or even Kyrie Irving, when you're an established superstar on a max level contract, you're kind of already comfortable. You really have no motivation to push it. Even a John Wall, same deal, right? No motivation to push it. The more time that it takes to get the next season started, the more recovery time you have, you've got no money on the table. For a player like Davis Bertans, where the payday is about to come, you have every reason to stay home, right? Because anything Mm -hmm. that goes wrong down in Orlando just is money coming out of your pocket. So the agent's decision there is like, hey, man, even if there's some bad PR for you sitting out, um, which hopefully there won't be a ton of that, there won't be too many uh, public guilt trippings, I don't think, considering these circumstances, uh, and also the fact that, you know, Washington's going nowhere. I mean, if they were like a two seed, you know, it would be a different decision, right? Right, Um, right. But I think if you're Bertans, the, the decision to stay home is pretty easy. 
if you're cousins, you're in the situation where like theoretically a, a contender could sign you and that could boost your value uh, in, you know, it's not like he's going to recapture the glory of the Golden State Warriors versus Toronto Raptors uh, finals where he had that one incredible game coming off the injury. I mean, that would be a lot to ask, right? But at the same time, I think he is an afterthought. Uh, you know, the, the multiple injuries have scared some people. There is some motivation to kind of put your name back out there. But there's also a major downside here, Michael, because if he goes there, he's not fully ready and he gets injured, that could be it. People could view that as like three strikes and you're out. So if you were his agent, um, what's your advice? And I guess if you were cousins, do you want to play or are you taking a more cautious approach? Uh, I know I'm asking you these uh, impossible hypotheticals, but uh, what do you think? <laughs> I think that if I were cousins, I would kind of already consider myself at rock bottom. I don't like, I see what you're saying with the downside and if you play terribly or if you rupture another Achilles or something like that, then that's probably it. But right now, the upside to playing, I think, is pretty big. I mean, the whole world is going to be watching. It is a, a significant opportunity for him to re-up and re-establish his reputation as one of the better bigs in the league. And if he comes in and he's in shape and he looks great, uh, you know, as a free agent heading into next season, I'm not saying he's going to get a humongous long-term commitment from anybody, but he won't get the league minimum either, which I think is is a positive for him. So, like, for example, if like the San Antonio Spurs wanted to sign him because of the LaMarcus Aldridge injury and slid him in there. And then the Spurs were able to uh, surprise some people and maybe actually advance after the eight initial games because of Cousins' performance, then he just made himself a ton of money. Uh, you know, that's a best case scenario. But if I was Cousins' agent, that would be a situation that I would not necessarily shy away from. Very interesting. So I think it was Matt Barnes... Uh, at some point here recently who who made a comment like, you know, he won a ring with the Warriors, but did he really win it? You know, I think, I guess maybe he was just sort of like, well, you know, he wasn't a major part of that team um, down the stretch. And I'm curious with some of these players like a Joakim Noah for the Clippers or Reggie Jackson for the Clippers. Remember, he, he got picked up by LA. He didn't mm -hmm. play too much there. I saw a couple of his games. Uh, I think I might have made a few sideways comments about his conditioning, so we'll see what he looks like if he shows up in Orlando. But uh, with some of these guys, it's so funny to picture them winning like the first title of their careers after so many tough seasons, right? Or so many mm -hmm. like playoff hardships um, with a team that they have basically no connection with that like immediately got shut down during this COVID season. Like if the Clippers win the title and Reggie Jackson gets a ring. He'll have a ring before Russell Westbrook and James Harden, you know, his tormentors in Oklahoma City all those years ago. Um, if if Noah wins a ring, it's like, you know, uh, compensation for all those, you know, brutal losses at the hands of LeBron James years ago as a member of the Bulls. And yet, is it really? Because it's the weirdest, like kind of craziest, uh, you know, championship run here of all time. Just some layers to chew on, Michael. I mean, do you think these rings are going to count for these kinds of guys? Well, I mean, the ring down in Florida, whoever wins it is going to be really weird. So it doesn't really matter. But I, I kind of just think this is this is like the NBA, right? We've been discussing the just constant churn of free agents and, and waiver wire guys and notable names for, for months now. So uh, I just think like that's what the NBA is. That's what it looks like. So it wouldn't be too weird to me if Joakim Noah... 
uh, won a ring or Reggie Jackson won a ring. I mean, the J- Reggie Jackson situation is really interesting because Lou Williams is one of those players who recently said that he was currently 50-50 on whether or not he was going to go down to Walt Disney World and play. So if Lou Williams does not play... I mean, Reggie Jackson is a really good insurance policy, in my opinion. I'm, I'm, I was higher on that signing when it happened than I think just about anybody in this business. Uh, and you give him bigger minutes and an expanded role, similar to what he had in Oklahoma City before he was traded to Detroit. Uh, and I just think that he can be a significant contributor in a positive way. I mean, they're not going to lean on him too much, but I think he could help off the bench. No, you read my mind. I, I think that that could wind up being a major move for them because you need that ball handling, that playmaking in the backcourt. Um, you know, you need to carry potentially a second unit. You're used to having that guy. You're used to having the pick and roll combination um, with a Montrez Harrell. If Williams doesn't play, that could be one of the biggest guys that we've we've heard of in, in terms of importance on the title chase to not uh, participate if he goes through with that plan. So. Uh, to me, the Jackson thing looks kind of brilliant in hindsight, uh, if that's how it plays out. Of course, this is all supposing that Jackson's in shape and ready to rock and um, you know performing at a little bit of a higher level um, you know, than we saw at times here in, in recent years. Michael, would it hurt you as a James Harden stand to see Reggie Jackson get his first <laughs> ring uh, before Harden? I'm not trying to rub this in your wounds, but how would you take that? Would it bother you? Because remember... There was all that friction, you know, back in those days, I guess in part because Jackson had to back up uh, Westbrook. So maybe it was more of a, a Westbrook-related uh, friction there. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, let's say the Clippers knock the Rockets out in the second round of the playoffs and, and Reggie Jackson goes on to claim a title. Does he get up on that uh, podium stage, socially distanced from Adam Silver, and dedicate the championship to his former Thunder teammates? <laughs> that would be one of the pettiest moves in NBA history. Yeah, but and if, who am I kidding? If, <laughs> they're not even giving him the microphone, are they? No, I, it, it'll be a wonder if he gets a hat. But <laughs> if if uh, if the Clippers beat the Rockets, I mean, I would just be personally devastated because I was wrong in my predictions, and I don't like being wrong. So that would be my first mental check uh, if that were to happen. Um but yeah, that would be pretty funny. I mean, you know, just like I don't even know where you want to go from here. There's some other names that we we should probably discuss. Some of well, these like really intriguing signings. I mean, yeah. Before we get the Rockets to those, had though, a few. Yeah, the Rockets did have a few. But now I'm picturing what do the the celebrations look like? Are they handing out masks instead of hats? Are they handing out rubber <laughs> gloves for the champagne bath? Um, is there a way to properly celebrate this thing for CDC guidelines? Dude. We, we may I, find out. <laughs> I don't think that there will be a celebration. Like, I I just, that's one of those things. There's got to be a there. celebration. And if you're stuck I, inside dude, for three months, do you think the guys will just run out and break quarantine, just go crazy through the streets of Disney World? Is dude, that possible? Dude, how weird is it, though? Just, I think it'll be more like relief and... Uh, just wanting to go home like I'm so glad this is over so if there was I think like it's just like you can't celebrate during like what is there to celebrate really like the the whole the world has put the has put professional sports and championships and all that into the proper perspective I think over the past few months and I think that will continue on by the time they actually are uh, deciding who wins this thing. I just think it's like, let's get this over with. I mean, people will be happy. Whoever wins will be happy and whatever. But 
like I just can't see a typical photo op opportunity where you know there's LeBron jumping up and down and like I just it's just really unbecoming and strange to even consider. So Michael, in your view, the the buzzer goes off. Nobody throws the basketball into the stands. They <laughs> no. all go get their luxury Louis Vuitton travel bags and and Gucci travel bags and immediately head for the tarmac with no presentation whatsoever. Uh, that's what I'm rooting for because I think that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> there's, I think, look, if they can make it to the NBA Finals and crown a champion, there's going to be a celebration, okay? I think it, it might be a weird one. It might be corny, but there will be some level of celebration. Hopefully, <laughs> they're, they're not. I mean, the, the tricky part is all the hugging and the dancing. We don't want people going home, um, you know, testing positive similar to like what might happen at a frat you know phone party back in college we don't want like an outbreak from the celebration no but now that i'm thinking about it more i think that the celebration will be like adam silver and mark cuban and tillman fertita and all the other owners who have stuck around and them just like dancing on the stage that they actually pulled this thing off and didn't lose two billion dollars like that is those are the people that are going to be celebrating more than the players which is really gross to think about so in some you know luxury bathrooms at the grand destino there's going to be a bunch of billionaires (laughs) uh dance or bathing like scrooge mcduck in their gold bars is basically what you're uh, what you're predicting yeah remember that scene in the last dance where michael jordan's just playing the piano yeah I, like i can imagine adam silver at that same piano just with a cigar hanging out of his mouth and a hat sideways cocked on his head with o- open champagne bottles and yeah, that's the image that I'm thinking about if this actually gets pulled off with success. And then the three NBA PR guys burst in the room and say, hey, Adam, <laughs> what are we going to do about next year? <laughs> it's time to start planning for 2020, 2021. Yeah. All right, enough of that. Let's do a few more of these transactions. So obviously we broke down in a lot of detail the Rockets move to get Robert Covington um, and basically trade out Clint Capella. But they also made a, a couple other moves around the edges, getting Jeff Green and Damari Carroll, just kind of you know, rejiggering their look, a little bit more versatility uh, positionally uh, in the front court. Do any of those moves seem like they could be helpful as we go into Orlando, or are they still kind of footnotes like they were back in March? I actually think, like, I, I'm, I'm siding on them being footnotes, but I think the circumstance of playing down in Florida makes them more valuable for a couple of reasons. Like, one, you don't know who's, you know, there's a possibility that someone can get sick on your team. So it's, it's really dark to think about this and consider it, but having insurance policies with you know, competent players who are, you know, could step in and, and play solid basketball and fit in this system that's a plus to have. And then just considering, you know, I always go back to our quarantine draft and considering what matters down or speculating about what matters down in Florida more than it would have in a normal environment. And I think someone like Jeff Green, someone like Damari Carroll, those are just vets. Those are pros. So I just think having uh, guys who are professionals who are veterans who can step in and uh you know deal with the the strangeness of everything that's happening down in florida i think that that's a plus more so than it would have been if the season was just going on as normal and you're you know damari carroll's probably not going to play any minutes jeff green's probably going to play very limited minutes but if they were to step in they wouldn't be a humongous drop-off 
Yeah, I, I hear that for sure. Another guy like that would be Marvin Williams with the Bucks, right? Like I was pretty mm-hmm. excited for that move for Milwaukee at the time. I mean, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but you feel like he's he's better than uh, Ursan Ilyasova. He gives you a little bit more shooting. He should be a fit around Giannis. And again, it's just a, a basketball lifer who's played in a, a bunch of different situations over the course of his career, um, who, you know, just a natural fit, clean fit into an offense kind of in the modern era where he doesn't need to dominate the ball. Uh, he's not going to get in the way. He's going to have a good attitude. He won't be elbowing anybody, um, you know, to to get a front seat at the DJ set on the lawn. You know, he's just going to be a, a friendly guy, <laughs> you know, having a good time playing cards type of guy. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's a move where had the season been canceled or if they can't complete this thing for somehow, I would have felt really bad for Milwaukee because it was a case where like their process was good. Their targeting was good. They were able to attract the right type of player. It was all a nice fit. It was lining up. And then for some you know reason, completely out of their control, it, it didn't work out. Uh, to me, that's one where that could pay some dividends here going forward. The other big one we should probably mention is Miami's overhaul of getting guys like Iguodala and Crowder and not uh, not bringing along Justice Winslow. I know Winslow has made some comments about maybe not participating, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on behalf of the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, for Miami, it was kind of a controversial, questionable move when they did it, just because of the money being invested in Iguodala. Um, you know, is this a team that's really going for some sort of a push? I mean, really, what's the what's the point? Uh, does salvaging Iguodala and, and getting something out of him this year make that move look better? Is it going to wind up not mattering? Is the extra time for Iguodala a good thing, considering he's barely played over the last 12 months, or could that be a bad thing? How do you read the Miami's uh, moves? Yeah, I mean, I like that move fine enough when it happened. I would have liked them to also trade for Danilo Gallinari. Um, but I understand that you would have been sacrificing quite a bit, of, including future cap space, to do something like that. But I, when I look at the Heat, I mean, what worries me is that Iguodala and Crowder only played 14 games uh, in a Miami Heat jersey before the season ended. And so, like, that style of play down there is very specific and very particular. And it's going to take time to assimilate. And I highly doubt that uh, they were comfortable or like 100% comfortable with everything that was going on before the season ended. And then trying to pick things up, it just, it'll feel like the first day of school, um, in a lot of ways for those two. I mean, Crowder did quietly shoot the ball pretty well. And, you know, he almost made 40% of seven threes per game, but he's also a free agent. So like, some of these, this kind of applies to other guys on this list, you know, uh, the, with the Sixers, with Alec Burks and 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 Glenn Robinson the third, like guys who are playing for contracts, I just think are really I, they're total wild cards in a lot of ways, and I don't know how could be like a summer league situation where they just go up there to get their shots. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another uh, variable that I think it will be interesting to see how it unfolds. Because uh, these guys just don't know. Some of it is not their fault. They don't really, you know, they're not assimilated. They're not 100% in tune 
with how their teams play and the, and what their teammates want and don't want. And so I yeah, just think that we, that part of it will be fascinating. We need the Disney World camera footage after some guy like Alec Burks goes out there and takes like 18 shots in a playoff game and his teammates are just freaking out on him in the hotel like, bro, what were you doing? You don't even really play for us. You know, know your role. Um, not saying that's going to happen with him specifically, but it is a dynamic that you're mentioning we should uh, you know definitely keep an eye on. Um, all right, uh, one final who he play for, Michael. Michael Kidd Gilchrist, who he play for? <laughs> you know, I I know the answer, but I did not know the answer before I knew that we were going to be talking about this, which is uh, kind of embarrassing, but I guess also. Don't blame me because <laughs> because no. a lot of stuff has happened. You're proving the point of this exercise. This feels like so, so long ago. And I always feel like when we're doing this over the course of an off season, I mean, guys like us, we track it religiously, basically for a living, right? So those minor moves, um, you know, we always commit to memory in July, but then usually it comes around to September or October and you're like, oh yeah, that guy signed there. And, and as you mentioned, the pace of these transactions has just increased so much in the free agency uh, over the last couple of years, you know, guys just switching teams constantly. It can be harder to keep up. Yeah, I think our listeners would be forgiven if they, they overlooked the fact that MKG went to Dallas, didn't do much in Dallas at all. He's kind of a weird fit there because they play so offensive oriented. They always want to have the five threads on the court. He's not much of a threat offensively, but he is, you know, still got that reputation as a imposing you know, perimeter defensive piece. If the Orlando games are really choppy and Dallas needs to like fit in and they can't get their three point shooting going, is there some way for MKG to make a mark here in Orlando? Or am I still grasping at straws that I should have given up six or seven years ago? No, I think that what's interesting about him is, I mean, he's a five right now in the NBA, which is kind of wild to think about when you consider who he was when he was drafted and what the expectations were. But I personally think like on on the defensive end, he can guard anybody and that's uh, obviously his strength. But on the offensive end, he's a five man and that's basically a rim roller and someone who can impact the offensive glass and box out and just be all energy all the time. Uh, So particularly with Dwight Powell, not around who was hurt who got hurt uh, and won't play down in florida mkg might have some type of role that's interesting on offense with a really creative head coach and obviously luka Doncic's one of the more ingenious passers we've seen come along in a very long time so in a game where like you don't even need to tell michael kidd gilchrist to hustle you don't really need to wind him up he's always like gearing to go, I think he could be pretty intriguing. I, like I, the, the the jump shot is still the ugliest one in the league by a mile, but uh, in bits and spurts, I think he can be helpful. I really like that answer, Michael, because I felt like last week at times, maybe the weight of our current reality was weighing on your shoulders. And to hear you break down for almost a full minute straight, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, <laughs> potential impacts on the Orlando NBA restart, I think officially marks the return of pro basketball, Michael. <laughs> it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to listen to. Do you feel better? I'm, I'm, 
I guess so, a little bit. Uh, it, it felt weird coming out of my mouth, I'm not going to lie, but uh, yeah. I, <laughs> no, it's, it's like you tried on your wedding suit for the first time in eight years, and it still fits, Michael. It looks great, you know? <laughs> After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. So here's the deal. We got a bunch of awesome questions from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Michael, I want to open with an email from our MVP listener. His name is Thaddeus. And people might say, why do you always include Thaddeus's questions? Well, here's why, Michael. Thaddeus will write us full essays almost once a week. And he's been doing this for, I don't know, a year, two years, three years. It's been a very long time. The level of loyalty from him is outstanding. He's always got great takes and great ideas. Uh, He decided to rant a little bit, Michael, on the state of Florida Um, I guess the state of coronavirus in the state of Florida. He writes, I'm loving the willingness to get into meaningful topics, guys, and it makes me proud to call myself a fan of the pod and not just Michael. So he likes you, the pod, Michael, and he also likes the podcast. Thaddeus continues, I get that Disney is probably the ideal location, but Florida is a disaster currently being run by a disaster of a human being. Disney shamelessly values profit over everything else as a company, and the ESPN connection isn't subtle. I get that its state economy runs on tourism, but it's reaped the benefit of that for decades to the tune of no state taxes. It already feels kind of crappy that Florida and Disney get this economic boost that I assume is pretty sizable, and the idea that they would get an entire season played in Disney next year while the rest of the country is still a disaster would be pretty tough to stomach. So Thaddeus is uh, he's going through it right now. I would say I believe he's feeling some type of way. Uh, Michael, uh, <laughs> we, we could put aside the question about next season for now. We were speculating on last week's podcast that they might have to be in a bubble uh, again mm-hmm. for next year, which is with no travel and, and no ability to play in front of fans. But what do you make of the, the recent developments in Florida as pertains to the coronavirus? I believe they topped 4,000 new cases for the first time on Saturday. They had topped 3,000 cases for the first time, I believe, last Thursday. So this is clearly a spike statewide. It's mostly oriented in Miami-Dade County, um, but Orange County, where Walt Disney World is, 
um, is certainly seeing its own rise, its own uptick. The local government there mandated that people wear masks, I, I believe, starting on Saturday. Statewide, there has been no re-implementation of a mask policy. There has been no kind of rollback or slowdown of their phase two opening, which began earlier this month, which basically said, you know, bars and gyms and, and museums can operate at 50% capacity. But this thing has really taken off. I mean, Florida is becoming a hot spot, and the NBA is about to send 375 players and additional staffers, and there's going to be media potentially uh, traveling down there to cover this thing as well. Is everybody going right into a a nightmare scenario? And how concerned would you be um, if you were the NBA's decision makers? Over the weekend, they released a statement that basically said, look, well, it basically said nothing, but they they said we're monitoring <laughs> we're monitoring the situation in Florida. We're in contact with the players' union, the local authorities, and um, you know medical experts, and we'll continue to assess. Um, I believe Michelle Roberts told um, ESPN.com that if they needed to make additional kind of reinforcements to the bubble procedures, that they would push for that. Um, you know, if the situation got so bleak down there in Florida. But Michael, I mean, I know you've had concerns about this entire plan at every step of the way. Um, is this sort of not an I told you so moment, but are you feeling like, yeah, maybe we should be listening to some of these concerns? It's just another red light going off. No, I mean, this just adds to how when, you know, our conversation about the protocol and the 130 page manual delivered by the league is like everything that they wrote looked great on paper. But in reality, that does not account for the fact that Florida is just uh, a cesspool right now. And this state did not take coronavirus seriously as a threat uh, months ago when they should have been. And what we're seeing right now is the result of that behavior. And like one of the really interesting stats that I came across uh, in trying to figure out how much of an impact this would have on the NBA is that, you know, soccer has resumed in Europe recently. And Florida had more had had thousands more cases over the weekend than Spain, England, Germany, and Italy combined. That is uh, just a mind blowing statistic to me, and one that really makes it feel like like hey, uh, all the precautions that have been taken in other sports uh, around the world that are ostensibly being able to pull this thing off with success, they did not have to deal with locating their games in Florida in a hotbed. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, can you imagine if COVID is rampant right outside the bubble and, you know, the hospitals are overwhelmed and it's a daily news story and, you know, the tests, the tests that are being used by the NBA every day to make sure that the players don't have uh, have not come down with coronavirus and that everyone in the bubble is, stay, is safe. Like, as they use those tests, are, are tests going to be, need, be needed outside of the bubble and in other places in the state? Uh, so I just think that it's it, it's not great. And obviously, the bubble is not even a foolproof uh, safeguard. And all the those pages and those those rules that the NBA released, like none of that is a hundred percent foolproof. So if you throw everybody into the situation and in this really dangerous environment, like I just I just don't think that it's a smart move. And I'm increasingly pessimistic about it working because of the rise in cases that we're seeing right now. 
Well, Michael, I'm going to go stat for stat with you, okay? We're going to be breaking down COVID like it's a, you know, a greatest of all time debate here. <laughs> um, the, the, the issue going on right now in Florida, it's not just a matter of more tests being taken so that there's more positive results. There's actually a higher positivity rate um, in Florida as well. So what that means is basically like um, a greater percentage of the population that's being tested uh, today is testing positive as compared to a couple of weeks ago. So that means it's spreading. It's pretty much undeniable. It's not just a matter of, oh, hey, the government's on it. And so now we're discovering all these cases. Um, you know, it's a situation right. that's worsening. I think it's also important to point out that over the weekend, the numbers in terms of new cases, it was about a five-fold increase from when the NBA first said it wanted to go to Disney World back in May. So the dynamics have changed significantly rapidly, right? Like when the NBA was first looking at Disney World, um, whether or not you wanted to believe Florida's numbers, and there's been some question about whether those numbers were legitimate early in the process. Um, you know, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, was publicly campaigning basically for sports leagues to come play there. And at that time, Florida had it way better than a hotspot like New York City. I mean, there's just no, no, no question about it. It was apples to oranges. But now Florida's uh, new, new case rate has accelerated basically by five times um, in less than a month and is is now getting the point where it's almost half of what the peak levels were in New York City, you know, during the very worst of the outbreak. Now, is, is Florida or any other state ever going to reach that same level that New York City did? Um, probably not, because that's a very dense city. Everybody was unprepared. There wasn't any social distancing going on. Um, you know, uh, stores and parties were open at 100% capacity back then, as opposed to being limited capacity right now in Florida. But still, it's an eye-opening number. And your point on the conditions directly outside of the bubble are very important, because as we've described, this is not a fixed bubble. People can come in and people can come out, whether it's the uh, the housekeeping staff, whether it's the media members in some cases who are going to be able to stay outside of the bubble and report on games um, you know, at, at the facilities. There are protections to keep players away from direct contact with anyone who's going to be going outside of the bubble. But as we know, if it's not a, a strict lockdown, um, you know, there's going to be some risk involved there. And add on to the fact that the players, you know, will not be, um, you know, expelled um, and they're not prevented from leaving the bubble. So, you know, any player who does decide to stray outside for a night on the town or to blow off some steam or whatever else could be at a much higher risk than they would have expected even one month ago during the same situation. So you're seeing a player like Justice Winslow and others, um, you know, raise these concerns as just real life impacts uh, that are, you know, factoring into their decision making. I don't blame them at all. I mean, it's pretty scary stuff. I know for myself, like trying to plan, you know, if I'm going down there to cover it, how am I going to get there? You're seeing some tests, uh, you know, positive tests at the Orlando airport. Um, you know, you're wondering, you know, what about like an Uber to Disney World? I mean, all these kinds of questions look a lot different today than they did even, you know, three weeks ago. And so it's definitely something for all fans, basketball fans to be monitoring here um, it's not like you've got to reload the Google coronavirus stats every single day, but but keep your eye on it because it's kind of becoming a whack-a-mole situation for Adam Silver, isn't it? It's like one moment it's coronavirus, the next moment it's players who are really upset and justifiably so about the social justice protests and whether it's going to be a distraction. The next minute, Florida's on fire. I mean, it's just one thing after another after another. Yeah, it's all of these signs that they shouldn't play. Um, but Ben... Think about when Rudy Gobert tested positive 
and how the league swiftly acted to just suspend the season right then. Like, what makes I, I like? Obviously, there 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 wasn't a bubble uh, uh, environment set up. That that there wasn't uh, any real precaution. It was kind of taking everybody by storm. But like, when you look at the what the 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 setting was for that decision, and then you look at however many months later to where we are now, and. Like, what more do we know about coronavirus and COVID that is so substantial, minus a vaccine that makes it logical to then resume action in a hotbed? Like, it's it's I just looking at it from that perspective. It's like kind of it's kind of wild to me. I would say that we do know a little bit more about the mortality rate. We do know a little bit more about who is impacted the worst. Um, I do think that some of the initial fear and panic, which we could argue is justifiable fear and panic back in March, has subsided to a degree. Now, that's not that we learned anything. It's just that we became comfortable living in a world that had this disease. Um, But your points are very well taken. I mean, I wouldn't say we're exactly where we were in March, but in terms of how serious this, um, this health situation is, how incredibly difficult it will be to make it through not even just the three months of basketball in Orlando, but even just the two to three weeks of run-up to getting to Orlando, which teams are going to start going through this week as players report and as they start to go through uh, coronavirus testing and everything else. I mean, even that is going to be a series of hurdles that they've got to jump through. Um, And there could certainly be positive tests here coming out here over the next week or two um, as guys start to show up with their their home teams. Because remember, as they start to gather in in their home markets, they're not required to live in a bubble. They can be living at home with family members. They can go to protest. The players uh, were able to get that language into this agreement. So if they want to go and participate in social justice protests or go to the grocery store or participate in other essential activities, which are all going to carry some level of risk, they're going to be able to do that until they get down to Orlando. So all of that is the possibility for positive tests and, and potential spread um, as well. All right, we're getting a little bit too dark here, Michael. Let's switch this up with a question from uh, Ross in Australia. He writes, Our Australian Football League started back up last weekend, and it was okay. Honestly, it was a little bit dull with cardboard cutout crowds and such, but it was good to watch the AFL again. This weekend, we were a quarter way through the games for round three, and we had one of the players that hadn't played this round test positive for the virus. The league postponed that game for the following day and had set this contingency by only releasing games for a four-week block. They haven't advised their plan for replaying that game or what happens if there are multiple breakouts on the same team. The difference between the AFL and the NBA is that we were almost at playoffs while the AFL has just barely started. What chance is there the NBA continues the playoffs if there are multiple outbreaks in the same team? Is it simply too bad for that team? And then what happens to the team that they were playing against? So this is a very important point that... uh, Ross is mentioning, uh, and we talked about the downsides of inviting 22 teams uh, to Florida, Michael, in terms of the complications and everything else, but that also let, left them with a pretty rigid schedule. They don't have a lot of wiggle room to delay a series by a week or two if they want to keep this thing on track in any you know meaningful manner if there is a positive test, right? So 
Um, the show kind of has to go on. I think they're going to have to leave behind any players that test positive. It's just sort of a tough luck situation. I don't know how they would be able to do kind of the start and stop thing that Ross is describing, unless there was a massive outbreak that affected basically all of the contenders. Um, we should also point out we're seeing start and stop stuff happen in Florida right now. The Philadelphia Phillies of Major League Baseball had to shut down their spring training facility after multiple players tested positive. Same thing for the Tampa Bay Lightning of the NHL. They had to shut down their facility. We saw both um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the University of South Florida football team both had multiple tests for their players. Uh, They have continued with practices so far, but those players have had to be isolated. So, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of, you know, the situation on the ground in Florida. If it's spread to that degree where multiple professional teams have had to shut down at least temporarily and others are kind of you know on the block potentially for for being next um it only increases to me at least the appearance of uh, complications for the nba yeah and i think a, a really good point that i recently heard made by uh, uh espn's kevin arnovitz is that let's say a team does have a mini outbreak or whatever, and like three guys test positive or four players test positive. I think there's a, a there could be the potential for a significant fear factor that spreads to players who are on teams where no one has tested positive. Where it's like, I don't want to, like I know that it's here. I don't want to play and risk getting it because I still don't know what the long term effects of this thing are to my lungs. I still don't know. I still don't want to get it and then spread it to a loved one asymptomatically you just it's so i think that that factor could you know we talk a lot about who tests positive and they, then they would have to quarantine and they wouldn't be able to play but i think there it could spread in in unforeseeable ways to other players you know not technically as the virus but just the fear of catching it knowing that it is it, it has broken the bubble and that it is inside the facility. So I think that that is a really scary uh, and unpredictable and unforeseeable scenario that I I just don't know how the league kind of deals with. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Um, I think that, you know, for now, their strategy is cross your fingers and, and hope for the best and take some really serious precautions to slow everything down. And, you know, if the worst case scenario comes, I imagine there will be a plug pulling moment. You know, other executives have had to make that difficult call. Um, I think that, you know, the risk reward of trying to go forward with this, I mean, the the reward is potentially $2 billion for the league, right? And, you know, in terms of revenue. Um, so that allows you, I would imagine, you know, from a very cynical perspective, the ability to take on quite a bit of risk before you're willing to compromise that again, in part because you've spent all this time, money and energy negotiating deals and putting together this return. Um, but at some point, you know, it would become bad for business, I would imagine. And, you know, at that point, I don't think Adam Silver would have a choice. You know, well, where, yeah. where exactly that line is, I don't know. And I have a question. I mean, I know that the rosters have been expanded to 17 players, but how accommodating do you think the league will be in terms of shuttle, shuttling in replacement players, like G League guys, uh Guys who, like, let's say a team has eight positive tests or whatever, and that those players are quarantining, but it's in the middle of a playoff series. And like you said, there's a time crunch. Like, we can't wait forever because 
next season is pending and the Olympics are next summer. And there's just a lot of things that have to get done as as quickly as possible. So if like, will the league just bring in other players? And then if they were to do that, like, what would that do to the product? And why would anyone want to watch? Uh, no offense, I don't mean to be disrespectful to players who are in the G League by any means, but why would a, a casual fan want to watch a unknown player who they are unfamiliar with uh, compete at this level? Like, I just maybe what I'm saying is like too speculative and not something that would the league would actually do, but I, I don't know how else you would play games if you needed players to get it done. Personally, I think if that situation came about, there would be not enough time to get players into the bubble safely, right? And so there would probably have to be a forfeit, you know? And that would be an absolute last resort before shutting down the entire thing. But if I had to make that call and a team got you know, eight positive tests, I think I would have to call their president and be like, hey, guys, um, you know, you can play with your seven. Or let's say they even had 12 positive tests, right? So they couldn't, uh-huh. field, they, they couldn't field a team. I think I would have to call the president and say, hey, man, of that team and just say, tough luck. Um, we knew there was going to be a risk involved. We gave it our best effort. Um, you know, we don't really have the ability to give you safe re- replacement players. And so we have to call this a forfeit. If you want to play three on five, I guess I would give them that opportunity, right? <laughs> um, it, it, it turns into a you know a, a last man standing kind of Lord of the Flies type situation. Um, but uh, no, I think you know if it if it came to that, I imagine they would allow a forfeit to take place before canceling this whole thing. As as well, crazy and crude as this sounds, I think that's would be the move. That's what I would do. do- do you think that they would go? I, I I actually don't think that this would ever happen for a lot of reasons, but. Like, let's say it's the second round of the playoffs and there were players who were, let's say someone on the Spurs who was, who didn't make it out of the, after the eight games did not qualify for the playoffs, but some players on the Spurs decided to stick around for whatever reason. Like what, what you're basically sp- saying is like if Marquise Morris gets sick, can they they sub in Marcus Morris and just keep going? No, I don't think you could do that, Michael. I mean, no, I, yeah, no, probably. No, well, that particular I, example, sure you can. No one's going to call you on it. But like, no, yeah, it, it, I think that like first of all, any player who gets eliminated from this thing is going home on the very first charter flight. Like out, that you know, is correct. Smoking. They may be driving rental cars out of that thing at full speed. You know, <laughs> I think. Uh, there is no chance that anyone's going to be sitting around, and that's part of the problem. I mean, that's the thing. You have to have hundreds and hundreds of players to put this thing on, and you have contracts for each of those players tied to other organizations. So you can't exactly loan players out or do what they do in soccer, you know, where there's sort of, um, you know, di- you know, different ways to transfer players rather than just simple, straightforward trades or signings. Because if that player were to get hurt, you know, then the the, the owner in that organization, his original team would be compromised. That's why I think they would be stuck. I don't think there would be enough time or, or ability to kind of put in like an emergency signing window. I think that it would just, you know, unfortunately wind up being a forfeit type situation. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. I thought I was trying to get us away from the darkness, Michael. All right, here's a question from John. He, sa- he says, I heard Michael's concerns on the last podcast that players should be discouraged from helping each other up off the ground after falling just to reduce the level of contact between players. Why don't we just take this further? Players are often on the ground after getting fouled. Maybe all players should be asked, please don't commit fouls. 
any defensive contact could become a foul now. We could change the rules. Defensive spacing could require coming no closer than two feet away from any offensive player. Or maybe everyone could foul out after three fouls to cut down on the contact. And then John continues, okay, guys, sarcasm over. But my point is, if they're going to play, they are going to play. We'll see how it works out, and I certainly hope that the health prevails. But once you've made the decision, there really isn't any point to trying to manage on-court safety to that kind of a level. I still love you, Michael. Stay skeptical. So, um, <laughs> Michael, I that was a, a very nice love note from John, and including some healthy sarcasm. Do you hear his point, though? I guess what he's saying is like, we might be overanalyzing the NBA's uh, health and safety protocol here slightly and that when it comes to the actual games, we need to just step back and expect them to be normal games. No, I yeah, maybe I misrepresented myself when I said that point uh, on the last episode. What I, I meant more was just like how weird it would be for the players from their perspective to like, are they going to be second guessing themselves in terms of should I help this dude up? Instead of like, should I sprint over and help this guy up as opposed to, uh, you know, when, you know, six months ago when I was playing basketball, it, I wouldn't think twice I would run over and I would help this dude up. And obviously that's like a minor thing, but uh, it's more like just from the, not like an official rule, just the players, their comfort level and what they're thinking about during the course of games in a stadium when there's no fans and they're constantly reminded of, the global pandemic with guys on the bench who have masks on and that sort of thing. So it's just, that's more of what I was going for with that point. No, you, you made your point very well. I thought, I mean, some of this stuff is just learned behavior and you've been doing it your entire life. It's not just about, Oh, you know, what's our team handshake and all that. It's like all these habits that I've built up over 20 years of playing basketball are very hard to unlearn. I mean, take LeBron James I mean, he kind of compulsively wipes his hands off on his Jersey or the shirt underneath his Jersey constantly when he's bringing the ball up to court right um i think behavior like that you know according to the nba's health and safety protocol you're trying to minimize that well good luck telling lebron that you know brandon roy used to do the same thing constantly wiping his hands off um you know during blazers games probably did it 150 times or or different free throw routines that guys have where um you know it's it's so deeply ingrained to them like you could tell them and point that point at the uh, health protocol all day long and it's going to be very difficult to change that so i'm mostly with john here i think they're going to try to keep the gameplay as as normal as possible but i just think the the overall point that we were trying to make john is that not only will it be an adjustment for players to some of the rules and the the guidance that they're already being given but the the viewing experience will be different because even the way they're laying the benches out are completely different than what we've seen, you know, during a normal NBA game. Um, the fact that a lot of the personnel is there is going to be wearing masks and gloves. That's very different from what we're, what we're accustomed to. So, um, you know, this is not going to be typical NBA basketball. And, uh, you know, I think that there will be an adjustment period if we ever get to watch these games, Michael, where everyone's like trying to wrap their minds around all the things that are different. All right, one final COVID question. It comes in from Tom. He says... Hey guys, I'm a relatively new listener. I found you guys through Ben's appearances on Locked On NBA. I live in Central Texas, though I hail from the Portland area. Well, Tom, shout out to Portland and to David Locke and the Locked On family. Love doing those shows. You guys can catch me there almost every Thursday. All right, his question. With several COVID vaccines entering late stage clinical trials, 
Would it be wise for the NBA to push for enrolling players and coaching staffs in these trials in the hopes of immunity by the time next season begins? If the league encouraged this approach, do you think it would be met favorably? In a similar vein, what do you think the reaction would be to the NBA requiring fans who attend games this fall to provide evidence of either a positive antibody test or vaccination to enter arenas? So first thing, Tom, the NBA is asking players to participate, I think, in like an antibody study of some sort through Yale University, or maybe it's a saliva test uh, study through Yale University um, that has been placed into the health and safety protocols. So they're on the same track, I guess, generally as you are, Tom, in terms of trying to make sure um, the players are participating and kind of furthering along the medical efforts, you know, with within the study of COVID. But Michael, what do you think about uh, you know Tom's question here on vaccines? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a scientist, so this one's a tricky one for me to to answer. Um, well, that's never stopped a lot of people in our country before, frankly. <laughs> I mean, especially <laughs> these days. Aren't we all scientists, Michael? I, I pride myself on knowing when to stay in my lane, Ben. Um, I think that, you know, the antibody test... I'll start there. It's just like it's far from a silver bullet right now. And, you know, if you are asymptomatic, you can test negative for it after a few months, even if you had coronavirus. Uh, And it also, I believe, still only has a 50 percent accuracy rate. So I I just I don't even know, like, what the latest is on all this, on all the science and what everybody knows about it. I know that what you just said about the league pushing players, I also wonder, like, uh, would is that a, a an MBPA situation where maybe players don't want to participate? I, I don't even know what is the the protocol here or how confusing it is. Um, but in terms of like the you know the vaccine actually happening and um, how that'll impact uh, you know fans from entering arenas and that sort of thing, also uh, I just think it'll be a, a while before any of this is actually relevant when we got to actually wonder if stadiums can be full and, and to what percentage and, and, and capacity. And, uh, so yeah, again, I'm rambling, but I'm not a scientist, so I'm, I'm doing my best here, Ben. No, you're doing great. Um, I would say that <laughs> I, I don't think NBA players are going to be thrown into vaccine trials. I'll put it that way. Um, I think yeah. that there would be pushback as you're mentioning, not only from the players union, but also from their agents. Um, I wouldn't say that these guys are skeptical of science. I think a lot of players embrace testing scientific approach to you know weight management um, you know conditioning programs all sorts of stuff but when it's an unknown that has you know potentially major you know long-term health implications um, I just think there's always going to be a natural wariness now if it's proven that it works in uh, trials I bet NBA players will be at the front of the line to get them <laughs> just because they've got the resources mm-hmm. to do it and um, you know again that's uh, sort of the way the world works as I believe our president once said, uh, of access to testing in the first place. So Mm. um, I guess I'm coming down (laughs) on that side where they probably won't be part of the trials, but they they will be there as soon as possible uh, to get the vaccine itself uh, if and when it happens. And by the way, Michael, um, I will be elbowing people out of line in in the vaccine line to uh, inject myself from every direction if we can ever get that thing. God, it just seems like the uh, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, doesn't it? So what about on the second question about the fans? Like, could you see some scenario where potentially 
if fans have a vaccine, then that'll, you know, puts them to the front of the season ticket holder line, Michael, where like next year we can kind of uh, maybe open up buildings earlier than we're anticipating because the vaccine will be widespread enough that it will be safe for people to kind of uh, accumulate in um, in large crowds. Yeah, I mean, I think if there is a vaccine that is permeating through our culture that is widely available, then people will have a lot more confidence in attending games. And I think uh, in just as a liability issue, I think stadiums will be more likely to or be more comfortable letting people in to full capacity as opposed to like 50% or 75% or whatever. Um, and I think states also would be fine letting people in uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, I think yeah, the vaccine is more the, the silver bullet than the antibody test is my, I guess, uh, long, short answer to this question. No, that, that makes sense. I, I'm with you. I mean, I could think that um, we, that's the only way we're going to see fans in the stadiums next year is if there is an, uh, a widespread you know, vaccine available. Um, you know, there is some method for kind of confirming whether people have it. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how you would have to go about that interfacing with the teams. Um, but to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. I like the idea from the emailer. And I'm sure that, you know, I mean, there's nothing that the NBA owners want more than, than butts in the seats because that's such a huge portion of their revenue that and to get there, you have to get over the mental hurdles that people are going to have about being in public spaces. As we saw over the weekend, you know, something like 6000 people were willing to go to a presidential rally that was advertised all over the country <laughs> for two weeks. Right. And that that mm-hmm. to me displays a real level of fear and apprehension um, of that virus, right? I mean, there's other possible explanations, but that's the most obvious, you know, t- kind of top line one. And, you know, to see people, you know, crowd into a, an arena for a Kings game or a Jazz game or, you know, pick a team, uh, there's going to need to be a peace of mind. And, and certainly the vaccine could provide that in ways that really nothing else could. So, you know, if we're going to see a full stadium, that's what it's going to take. Great point by the emailer. All right, last one here. From our longtime buddy Stavros in Sydney, he writes, I've always taken umbrage with the much-trodden trope that the Stars win championships or that the team with the best player always wins the series. I'm not sure if the quote-unquote Stars are the chicken or the egg in this theory, but whichever one it is, it's the one that came second. Stars truly become stars because they win championships. So championships come first, then players are labeled as the best player in the series they just won, thus fulfilling a self-fulfilling prophecy that the stars win championships. Please discuss and dispel this mythology and answer once and for all, which came first, the championship or the star. So Michael, do you get what Stavros is getting at here that... um, when people say, oh, that the team that had the best player won the series, that that's often reliant on the team actually winning the series and that if it had gone the other way, we would just say the same thing about the best player on uh, on the winning team. Uh, are you with him on that? This is the most uh, galaxy brain question that I think we've ever received as podcast hosts. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, though. I'm not putting it down. Michael, this uh, is his. This is Stavros's baseline, okay? He's operating on a different plane. <laughs> I mean, he, he is a four-dimensional chess type of thinker, has been for years. He only brings you the heaters. I ask you the tough questions. Stavros asks you the incomprehensibly tough questions, okay? 
This was like a, if I'm in the batter's box, this fastball is 129 miles an hour. Um, I I don't think it's that complicated. Like, if you're a star, you're a star because you win. <laughs> and I think that those two components kind of go hand in hand, and it's very just straightforward to me. Um, am I even answering this question? I don't even know. But... Uh, let me jump in real quick because sure. I th- I think that the idea that the team with the best player always wins the series has actually been proven false repeatedly in recent years, thanks to LeBron and the Cavaliers. Like the Cavaliers, oh, sure. yeah. didn't they almost construct their team precisely to prove this false? It's like, let's see how many J.R. Smith blunders we can force LeBron to trip through as he's dominating the sport and still coming up short and, and, and finishing second. So Stavros, I reject the premise off the top. That's number one. I do. Th- what really bothers me though is how much we tie Finals MVP to being, you know, kind of the, the quote unquote best player on the winning team or the most important player on the winning team. I would like to see the Finals MVP given out more often to just the pure best player in the series, regardless of winning or losing. There's been a couple times where I would have personally voted for LeBron to have that designation. It doesn't happen that often. Uh, but I do think that you get into certain situations um, that, you know, where this line of thinking comes from, where just, you know, it, it does prove true, like just flat out the guy who played the best, you know, Jordan would be the most obvious example in the in the 90s where there was just no question who the best player was. And of course, his team won those series. Um, but, you know, you can go back in, in earlier uh, you know, matchups against the Pistons, and you could make a strong case that much like, you know, current LeBron, Jordan was the best player on the court, but he was still coming up short. I also think that Stavros, it might be misdefining uh, stars here a little bit, um, you know, that, that stars win championships. There's plenty of stars that don't win championships. Everybody would agree Charles Barkley, John Stockton, Carl Malone were star level players, even superstar level players. Um, I think that we, we've now gotten ourselves into this super team era where the treatment's a little bit different. It's almost like the best combination of talent or the most super team, you know, super teams win championships has kind of become the new, um, the new mantra. Who's ever can, uh, you know, compile the most star power collectively is the team that is, you know, kind of quote unquote guaranteed uh, to win the title. But even then, you know, we've got the Mavericks upending that conversation in 2011. We've got the Spurs upending that conversation in 2014 we've got uh, the raptors uh you know and the injuries played a factor there but upending the conversation uh in 2019 as well so stavros i say forget about the chicken and the egg find new maxims these maxims do not apply throw them in the trash can i agree with uh everything you said ben i will throw in like uh yeah i mean i just like I just don't think that winning the title even necessarily yeah necessarily should demand that you are a, a superstar or I guess the other way around is what I'm trying to say like I'm just thinking about someone like James Harden who's just so clearly a superstar regardless of whether or not he wins a championship and I've always thought that the people who were critical of someone who is so clearly good enough to win it all, but just didn't have the breaks necessarily fall in their favor. I just never understood that that type of criticism. And he's an example. And another kind of weird example is like the argument that Kevin Durant outplayed LeBron in, in those finals when he was with the Warriors versus the Cavs. 
And it was kind of just like, no, like you could look at it statistically and say, sure, Kevin Durant had better numbers or whatever, but like the supporting casts and just adding that context in, it just kind of killed it for me. Like, obviously LeBron was still a better player. I just like it. LeBron didn't have uh, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. And now we're going down a rabbit hole here. But like that has always bothered me because it was just so clear to me that LeBron was the best player in those series. No, and that's when I always go to the thing of like if they traded spots, right? If you just traded the two players, what would the series wind up looking like? And that's why I've always felt like a lot of those series, LeBron was the best player on the court because, you know, Kevin, uh, if he was on the weaker team, would have struggled to achieve the same result, whether it's how long the series went or what the numbers look like. Um, compared to what LeBron did. I mean, as the counterpoint, um, or I guess, uh, you know, the, the the opposite point of what you're trying to say with Harden being a star, just never having won, I think we've also seen guys who were stars before they won. Kevin Durant is a great example. Steph Curry uh, is another great example. Now, do they get validated to a different degree historically because they have the rings? I think so. Do they move up the charts of the all-time players because of that? For sure. Um, but I don't think that people were snubbing their nose at those players and saying, oh, come on, you know, these guys are bums until they finally got it done. Um, I think that th- that would be um, overly simplistic. So Stavros, we're going to work, we're going to workshop on some more accurate, applicable maxims that we can use, but we've poked holes in all the ones that you sent our way. I think that that's actually going to make you happy uh, because it sounds to me like you don't uh, really buy them too much either, but feel free to roast anyone who uses those blanket statements because they simply do not apply every single year. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can always email us your responses to anything we talked about today. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. You can email us about anything else too, frankly. Um, We're always glad to take a look at, at your thoughts here as the NBA tries to get itself back on track. Michael, we're on Apple Podcasts. Listeners can search for us by typing in Open Floor. Once they find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. The last time I checked, Michael, I think we're over 2,000 reviews on there. I would love it if somebody's listening right now, stops what they're doing, and bumps us up one more. It would be amazing. It really helps us out. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villasinvictor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. Michael, we'll double back later this week. But until then, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.